Athena grants Diomedes an Achaean power to fight the Trojans and convinces Ares, who has sided with the Trojans, to refrain from entering the fray. Diomedes is smashing the Trojan lines before him when Pandarus, the Trojan who previously broke the truce by shooting Menelaus, shoots Diomedes. Diomedes is restored by Athena, who tells him not to fight any of the immortals save Aphrodite, and grants him the ability to see the gods. Diomedes delivers a brutal death to, to Pandarus and gravely wounds Aeneas. As she did for Paris, Aphrodite now attempts to whisk Aeneas, her son, away from imminent death. But Diomedes spears the immortal goddess in the wrist. Apollo, who has to repel Diomedes several times, is able to rescue Aeneas and places a phantom Aeneas on the battlefield. Apollo convinces Ares to return to the fight on behalf of the Trojans. Sarpedon, the son of Zeus, chides his fellow Trojan, Prince Hector, for his lack of courage in the face of the onslaught of Diomedes. And Aeneas, having been tended to by the gods, returns to the battle. Hector and Ares push the Trojans forward, and Diomedes, who was given the gift to see the gods by Athena, warns his fellow Achaeans of the war god's presence. Hera and Athena, Athena return to the field of battle, and Athena assists Diomedes in spearing the god of war. A wounded Ares returns to Olympus, and, after a tirade against Athena, is healed, and then sits next to Zeus. Welcome to the Sin of the Great Books podcast. I'm Adam Minahan. Uh, we're so glad you're joining us. Whether you like soldiers using boulders for weapons, whether you like reading litanies of men dying at the hands of Diomedes, or whether you like learning about fickle gods, we are glad you are joining us this evening as we talk about book five of the Iliad. Make sure you go check us out on ascendthegreatbookspodcast.com. You can get our our notes, we can get our show notes that Stephen Garlick has generously, his charity knows no bounds of putting together these uh, notes for uh, handouts for the, the Iliad as we go through the year of Homer. Ascend the great books If you guys are joining us as a group of men or and or women uh, reading the great books, make sure you sit, take a picture, send it to us on social media. We love to see and uh, hear how you, how you guys are doing as you're reading through Homer, as you're reading through it with us. We hope that you are enjoying it as much as we are. Deacon, how's everything going? You doing well? Things are going great. I'm excited to talk about book five. Book five is the book for me in the Iliad that I think finally convinced me that I loved it, right? This is just, it's in retrospect, it's not my favorite book. Like there's lots of things that we'll see kind of coming up in the Iliad that I think I love more in retrospect, but book five was the one that I was like, yeah, I like this text. Like I really do. And it's kind of just captured my imagination. Uh, before we go any deeper, we have a guest. So we have Mr. Grayson Quay, who is the editor of the Daily Caller, has articles up in the National Review, the Federalist, the American Conservative, the American Mind, and many other places. Grayson, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me, Deacon. Yeah. So Grayson and I met at a conference up in Steubenville. I had a very good time up there. And also, Grayson, I, I'm sure you've got this before, but you, you have an amazing name. Like, I really like your name. Like, you sound, Grayson Quay sounds like you should be the protagonist in an amazing English novel. 
Oh, well, thank you very much. I, uh, I get a lot of mixed feedback on this. Um, <laughs> people who don't like me think it sounds like a, uh, oh, I don't know, like some kind of aristocratic slave owner or something. But, uh, <laughs> well, no, I, I, I really I like, like you, so, right? I like Anglo-Saxon, uh, good Anglo-Saxon name for a, a son born in his father's old age, gray son. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that a lot. Okay. So you used to be, so you're the editor of the Daily Caller, but you used to be a teacher at a classical school. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, did a stint as a, as a teacher. It wasn't for me, but I, I did love the material. Yeah. So speaking of the material, do you have like any particular fondness for the Iliad? Are you an Odyssey guy? Like, what do you think? I'm an Iliad guy. Every so often I do, a, I'll do like a Twitter poll of like, what's better, the Iliad or the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And usually the Iliad kind of goes out to an early lead and then the Odyssey makes a comeback and wins. Um, but I'm definitely an Iliad guy. I actually, I guess my, my first exposure to the story was watching uh, the Brad Pitt movie in ninth grade, probably. Um, you, so you watched the documentary? Yeah, You've yeah. seen the documentary? Yeah, of okay. course. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Which is hilarious. Uh, the The funniest part of that movie is that they have Menelaus die during the duel with Paris, um, mm -hmm. which like it's made clear several mm -hmm. times in the poem that if Menelaus dies, we all just have to go home because we no longer have a pretext for the war. Right. <laughs> um, the casting in that movie, though, is amazing. Oh, like, yeah. Brad Pitt's an excellent Achilles. Like, he is. When I, when I read the Iliad, I still have those characters in my head. And also, like, what was that? Orlando Bloom as Paris? Mm -hmm. Just perfect. You yeah, love to hate. Uh, Eric Bana as uh, as Hector is also great. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, but then I got through. I actually didn't read the Iliad until after college. Um, when I, you know, I finished college, and then I kind of had this realization. I think this was around the time I read Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis's autobiography, where he goes through his education, where, you know, he's in like middle school, and he has this tutor who's like, "All right, time to learn the languages." Just mm -hmm. and learn the languages was like here's a copy of Homer in Greek and a Greek dictionary, like learn Greek. <laughs> uh, and he does the same thing for, for Latin and German and French and Italian. Um, wow. And I was just like, wow, I'm an idiot. Like I have a college degree and I've never read Homer. Like <laughs> the entire history of, of Western education is, is mocking me. So I finally read, uh, read the Iliad in, in a translation, of course. Um, but, and I just really fell in love with it. Like, I'm truly of the opinion that as a, as a portrait of war, um, it hasn't been surpassed by any, any novel or film made since it. Hmm. Wow. Grayson, let me ask you a question as for the guys and, and gals who are, <coughs> sorry, it's Adam the first time I've... Adam's drinking and can't handle whatever Ooh, he just ever, ever had a whiskey. Um, <laughs> Grayson, uh, for the first time, uh, for the for the people who have reading the, who are reading uh, the Iliad for the first time, what is your advice as they're going through the Iliad? Like it, we're only on book five. There's uh, kind of like Deegan said, like this is the book that actually captured his imagination. Um, I've heard from other people as they've read through it for the first time, kind of stalls. It's it's tough for people to get through it. Uh, what's your advice for those who are reading this for the first time? Um. Yeah, I, I imagine a lot of people uh, bow out of the catalog of ships. Um, <laughs> book book two is brutal. Book yeah. two is brutal. I think when I taught this at the classical school, I was like, 
yeah, just skim this. Like it's, <laughs> this would have been, this would have been incredibly exciting for the people originally listening to this, where they'd hear their hometown and go, ah, you know, but right. it means nothing to us. Um, but yeah, I think that my, I think that my best piece of advice is just to try to put yourself in the, the shoes of the original audience. Like imagine you're just, uh, you know, imagine you're just kind of a regular, you know, peasant farmer in ancient Greece and, uh, you know, the, the wandering bard has come to your town and is performing the Iliad eight hours a day for three days. Um, mm -hmm. And you're just sitting there listening to this and it, it ties in with all these other stories, you know, that they just kind of have to gesture at in the poem, but you know, these stories. Um, it's almost like how in a Marvel movie, you know, you don't, they don't need to tell you the incredible Hulk's whole backstory. If he shows up in a movie for 10 minutes, mm -hmm. you, you know, all of that. And he kind of brings all of that in with him. Um, so I'd say just try to keep that in mind. You know, the Homeric similes often are, are agrarian in nature. It's always like, you know, if you've never been to war, like think about that time a lion tried to kill your uh, your sheep and you, you and your buddies had to, to try to fight it off um, and how terrified you were. Um, and I think that 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 can really help uh, to try to put yourself in the in the shoes of the original audience. No, I like that a lot. I like that because that was the that was the piece of information that really helped me to digest book two when they have all those like listing of all these people and et cetera, is that you have to realize that like his original audience, particularly like if you think of him saying to like an aristocratic audience, like they're listening to about their forefathers, right? Mm -hmm. They can draw their lineages to these people. Cause I think that helps explain the other thing that we're also seeing happen in book five, which is like, you know, two guys are going to step out into the no man's land and have a duel. And I need to know like, who your grandparents were and who your parents were. And like, there's these long monologues, right. Between each of them. And I think it really helps understand like, Oh, well to his original audience, particularly to the aristocrats, like this would have been very helpful because like, they're actually hearing like, Oh, these are my ancestors, right? Like I have a deep uh, fondness and almost a filial piety towards them. And it's important because very rarely does a nameless soldier die. Yeah. Yeah, not only not only do you know the name of the person who died, but often you know, you know, the names of his of his parents and of his of his siblings back home and you occasionally will even get this little sketch of a scene where you know, you'll kind of for a second get this flash of his parents like mourning him or or you know, never having their sons come home from the war or something and it just really gives you this human cost of it but also nestles it within community. And it's funny, there's kind of multiple levels of this because you know, you have the audience connecting with the poem as their heritage, and then you have the characters within the poem um, situating themselves within an ongoing tradition. This is like largely the role that Nestor plays to kind of bring up um, these old stories and tell them kind of sometimes at great length and connect them to what's going on at the moment. Okay, are you a pro or con Nestor? Are you a big fan of Nestor or are you you're not a big fan of Nestor? Um. Nestor tends to go on, certainly, um, and and it often requires a lot of uh, a lot of googling to figure out what exactly he's talking about. Um, so, uh, you know, for the again, it's something where for the original audience, I'm sure this was like one of your favorite parts, but for me, it, it turns into a little bit of a slog. Uh, it's very rewarding often when you when you kind of unpack everything, but mm -hmm. yeah, no, I think so. Yeah, Nestor is, I think, an acquired taste um <laughs> a but he sophisticated is really taste 
Deacon. It's yeah, Adam's, Adam's a big fan of Nestor, so he tends to go to bat for him uh, a lot. But he really is the right. He's he's that age equals wisdom. He's the link to uh, this kind of lost age before him where he had all the heroes and things of this nature. And also when men were stronger, right? That's yeah, one thing. You get that yeah, great line when he uh, when when Diomedes chucks the the boulder at um, at Aeneas, where it's like, "No two men can lift this thing now because men are pansies now." But back then, he just didn't even think about it. Right? Yeah. So, which is great because like I read it, I'm like, "Man, these guys sound really tough." And then it's like, "Yeah, these are the pansies." I'm like, "Oh, we have we've kind of fallen so far." <laughs> so, no, very good. Okay, let's look at the text. Let's look at uh, let's look at book five. So Diomedes fights the gods. So one of the things that, that caught my attention, and Grayson, feel free to, to jump in and, and say something else that, that stands out to you if I skip anything. But the first thing that really caught my attention was a line around line 70 or so in the Fagel's uh, edition, where we actually hear about a Trojan, not an Achaean, but a Trojan that para, or excuse me, that Athena loves. And one of the things that we're kind of tracking as this narrative unfolds is, you know, Grayson, one of the things that we did is that when we started the Iliad, we kind of took Homer on his kind of face value, Homer as a teacher. So there's some of these backstories that if Homer explains later in the Iliad, we haven't really explained them yet because we're kind of watching to see how Homer unfolds them. So one of the things that we've really noticed is that Athena uh, greatly hates the Trojans. By book five, we're still not quite sure why. We're not quite sure why Athena and Hera have such a deep and abiding hatred for the Trojans. So it struck me as odd, or at least unique, that here we see that there is a Trojan that she loves, right? And that he's a he's a shipwright. He builds ships. And this kind of this goes into something and dovetails into something that I think is an important question in this book that I think I had a lot of questions about that I think it helps unpack, which is who exactly is Athena? Because we contextualize her as like the goddess of wisdom. But then when I think about that, I think a lot of first time readers think about that. You think of like, oh, like the philosophers, like that's who she's going to be the goddess of, right? These kind of thinkers. Yet we see her like, particularly in this book, arming for war, entering into battle. And here we see her, right, that, that, that wisdom includes practical craft. And so she loves this guy who was a shipwright. But then we find out actually built the ships that brought Helen back to Troy. And what's most interesting to me is, is that Athena's love for him does not actually abide him anything. Like not only does he die, but he dies a very terrible agonizing death. He's actually, it says he is like 73, 72 or so. It says it speared him in the right buttock, the point pounding under the pelvis, jabbed and pierced the bladder. He dropped to his knees screaming, Death swirling round him. Yeah, that's as I I remember that. That's one of the ones that sticks in my head. Um, and then there's the one just like ten lines later where you have um, uh, Pideus here, the the razor spear slicing straight up through the jaws, cutting away the tongue. He sank in the dust, teeth clenching the cold bronze. That just like yes. that just gives me a shiver to read too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, what's interesting about the Athena narrative that caught my attention with the relationship between, okay, here's a mortal that Athena loves and it doesn't abide him anything. Like mm -hmm. one of the themes that we're kind of tracking through the Iliad is the, is kind of the relationship between the will of man, right? The free will of man 
<clears throat> excuse me, and the will of the gods. And like how much, like how much agency does a person actually have versus yeah. like how fatalistic is this tale? Because Homer has a line. Let me see here. Where does he say this? Yeah, when he when he's about to die, this is like seventy two or so. He says, "What could the man know of all the gods' decrees?" Right. So he's loved by Athena. He has this love. She loves him more than any other Trojan, but it affords him nothing. And I think there's a there's an import here to understanding human agency versus the fatalism of the Iliad. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of my mother and I have kind of this back and forth joke where whenever I'm you know, whenever growing up and even to this day, I was going through something difficult. She would kind of say something like, well, or I didn't know what I, what I wanted to do next in life or something, or was struggling with a decision. She would say, oh, well, God loves you and God has a plan for your life. And I would say, well, that doesn't make me feel better because God's plan for some people's life is that they'd be sawn in two, you know? Um, right. Like it doesn't, the fact that God has a plan for my life doesn't, the fact that God loves me and has a plan for me doesn't mean I'm going to like enjoy my life uh, necessarily. I mean, thankfully I'm, a pretty happy person uh, and have a lot of wonderful things in my life, but I, I don't regard that as some kind of guarantee by, by having uh, any sort of divine favor in my life. Yeah. I mean, it, it's tough to, to, to read this and say like, well, where's the justice, you know, mm -hmm. where is something like, you know, he's given the due to the gods that he's supposed to like, where, where, do, you know, why is it not yielding him anything in return? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point, because I think what you'd think a lot of times is that, you know, as long as you give your sacrifices, right, there's this like transactional, almost economic relationship between the mortals and the immortals. And it really doesn't play out that way, because we'll see like, you know, why does Hera and Athena hate Troy? We also see at one point that Zeus admits that he loves Troy more than any other city. And it just doesn't like, what does that actually afford you? This is why I think it's so funny for those who are online too much. Uh, one of the things I notice on Twitter or X on like some of these like neo-pagan accounts is they talk about like, you know, how great the Greek gods are and this like masculinity and et cetera. And I've always like curious, like, have you guys never read the Iliad? Like, if you never read like what the gods are actually like in this, like it's not it's not the mortals that are like the Nietzschean Ubermensch. It's the gods, right? The gods do whatever they will. And the men are like the sheep. And that's actually one of the main analogies uh, throughout the Iliad for the Trojans is that Homer will compare their army over and over again to sheep, right? They're sheep to slaughter. Yeah. I mean, even just the, the opening lines um, where it talks about them being, you know, cast down to Hades and, and having becoming food for dogs. Right. It's um, and like, that's it. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not even, it's not even really necessarily like you that goes to Hades. It's kind of a, a shade or an echo of you. Like, in some very real sense, like the real you dies when the, you know, the dark mist covers your vision. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Cause that's one thing that we've been looking at too, is that they don't have like the word soul is probably too thick and too robust for Homer, at least how we think it in the West, like, you know, post Aristotle, post Plato, post Christianity, but they mm -hmm. have this like spirit, this shade, this thumos, right. That like, really encapsulates like this love of greatness, this love of honor and glory, but it's that thing that kind of escapes from your body. And then when we kind of get the Iliad, we'll see it later. Um, when one of the main characters of the Iliad dies, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the main characters of the Iliad dies, 
we'll see his spirit is Thumos and like how that comes back. And then we actually get a lot of this when we read the Odyssey, right? Mm-hmm. He actually, Odysseus will actually go down into the house of uh, the dead and you see like these spirits. Spoiler alert. That, <laughs> sorry, Adam's a first time reader. Odysseus survives the Iliad. There's a whole other book <laughs> called the Odyssey. So spoiler, it's been out for 3000 years. I apologize. So anyway, we're moving on from Adam's commentary. So, Diomedes, right? So this, he's on the war path. And again, I just this really just caught my imagination the first time I read it. In the Iliad, one thing I love about the Iliad, and maybe, Grayson, you saw this if you taught at like a classical school, because usually when people start reading the right books, and particularly as an adolescent, say like freshman year of high school, you read the Iliad. And I think Providence has provided it that this is just like a wonderful book to start you off because there are perennial themes like, hey, what's the relationship between like the will of man and the will of the gods? Or what does it actually mean to be a good man? Like, you know, arete, excellence. But also there's just like people getting speared in the face. There's yeah. a lot of things to keep like, adolescents like entertained as they read through this, right? Mm-hmm. I think Providence has provided a pretty good book uh, to kick off the great books tradition. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, um, yeah, people were, students were very interested in this, especially compared to like kind of later, later texts that were a little drier. This is a, this is a really mm-hmm. great starting point. Um, so let's look at so Pandarus, right? Yeah. So so he makes this comeback, right? So like it seems like that the Greeks. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Deacon. No, you're, I didn't I, anything I, else in the tribute. I was I was out of ideas. So go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. I like I just get excited about this because it just it, like you know the Greeks seem to like start to be dominating. You know, at this point, like around what line 100, 102, something like that. You see, like mm-hmm. uh, the Trojans are now in a panic. You know they're 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 panicking and is it Pan Pandarus is that right is that how you say it sure okay I mean again I'm the first time I'm the newbie so I I get a pass if I'm if I'm saying it wrong if I'm saying it wrong you know reply to us and tell Deacon Garlic that uh that he needs to say it the correct way so that way but you see Pandarus like uh he makes this return and when he when he takes his bow and it seems like he he just hits. Diomedes, at least, like he thinks he's hitting Diomedes, and I thought, wow, this is this book is taking a turn very quickly. I did not see this coming. Like, what was your initial thoughts, Grayson? Whenever, uh, you know, you see you see Pandarus make this return, they're winning, and then he hits Diomedes, and you're like, what? Yeah, like the 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 Aristia is is over before it could get started. Um, Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh. You got Agamemnon's Aristia already, though, and and he takes a wound during his as well. Um, so can I think there's a, is that can correct? You give us, can you give us like the working definition of Aristia? Oh yeah, I didn't know if you you'd covered that yet. Yeah, an Aristia is a, you know, it comes from Arete, like the the term for excellence, and it's kind of a, a warrior's display of his own excellence. Um, so I think there's five of them in the book. There's um, Menelaus, or sorry, I think there's Agamemnon, Diomedes here, uh, Hector, Patroclus, and then Achilles. Um, And there's an interesting thing. I was actually uh, reviewing this book today. Um, Well, we'll get to this later when we get to the gods thing. That's, I'll save that. Um, But yeah, when that arrow hits, it's a really interesting moment. And Pandarus is drawn so well as a character, like you really he's really well differentiated. Like you can, you can picture him like jumping up and down. Like I got him. I got him. Like he gets right. so excited when he hits him. And then later when he throws the spear at him and 
uh, you know, penetrates the shield, but kind of gets stopped by his breastplate. And, but he can't see that because all he can see is the shield. And he does the same thing again. He's like, I got you. I got you. Right. Yeah. And then in between that, he's like talking to Hector. And he's like, I'm going to take this bow home and break it in half. Like nobody I shoot with this thing seems to die. Like I don't even know why I brought this thing. I had a perfectly good chariot at home and I left it at home because I thought I'd use my bow. And ah, I'm an idiot. I hate this thing. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we sh we should remind people, right? He's coming off thinking they doing the literally exact same thing with breaking the truce, shooting Menelaus, right? Mm -hmm. Like he th he thought he got him, right? And the thing the mm -hmm. funny thing we covered was that book four is the one thing I love about that scene is when Pandarus hits him and Menelaus is bleeding, is where Agamemnon thinks that Menelaus is dying, and mm -hmm. you can tell very quickly that Agamemnon cares more about his brother because if his brother dies, the whole war is over. Yeah. Not really that like Menelaus actually survives, but like, what am I going to do if you die? Like, mm -hmm. I can't stay here. So no, I think your characterization of, of Pandarus is, is absolutely correct because that's how I view him. And then he eventually, like you said, goes to his spear. One thing though I'd point out is so he shoots Diomedes and then Diomedes cries out to Athena. And one thing I thought, maybe it's filial piety. There's just like a beautiful thing of the family here, particularly with Diomedes, you know, Aristia here that we're seeing with him is I love that like this is like maybe 135 or so. Athena responds to Diomedes' prayer, and she says, Now take heart, Diomedes. Fight it out with the Trojans. Deep in your chest I have put your father's strength. I just Man. found that to be a beautiful, beautiful line, right? Like, first off, I, you know, um, she knows his father, right? Athena knows his father. And there's this thing of like, I'm going to give you the strength of your father. And I just found it to be a very beautiful familial kind of generational moment of like diomedes you now's your time as a son to step up to the reputation of your father and do a good job yeah this is this, uh, is, this, this is like uh, c.s lewis like to, to bring it back grace and like what you were saying earlier right this is like men with chests you know mm -hmm. this is like uh this opportunity like to me like when i read this my instant thought was like c.s lewis men with chests apparently yeah. so this is interesting um Tidius, right, his father. Yeah, I was just reading this today that um, this doesn't come up in the Iliad, but apparently, um, so Tidius was a favorite of Athena's to the point that she was considering um, kind of making him into an immortal. Hmm. Um, and the reason uh, she doesn't, she kind of, he's dying wounded on the battlefield next to kind of his great enemy that they've sort of wounded each other mortally in a duel. And he hates his enemy so much that he's, you know, eating the guy's brains that have spilled out of his head on the battlefield. Like he's engaging in cannibalism, um, hmm. which later when Achilles loses his mind, we'll see him like make remarks about that. Like, you know, hmm. I'm so like, well, he'll, he'll tell Hector, like, I hate you so much. I could like eat you alive right now. Um, yeah. Where it's just like this symbol of like a total loss of restraint. Um, and like, that's why Athena hung back from making Tidius immortal. So it's it's sort of this moment too, where she's, you know, she loves the son and is perhaps like hoping that he won't fail where his father did uh, in an interesting way. Um, no, I appreciate that backstory. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. That, that kind of hatred. Yeah. I like that you've, you've drawn that out because we do see that in Iliad and we'll see it coming up and it's Achilles says it. And actually I think two other characters will say it about the, mm -hmm. their hatred, the rage gets to such a level. They talk about eating their enemy raw, right? Mm -hmm. To just gobble them yeah, up. Yeah, there's a, in preparation for this, actually, I have a, I have a book on my shelf that I've, I've flipped through and read sections, but I haven't read the whole thing, but it's called um, Achilles in Vietnam. 
the author's name is Jonathan Shea. He's a psychiatrist who also has kind of a humanities PhD. And he did this long project working with uh, Vietnam veterans who were, you know, traumatized by the war, um, especially ones who kind of uh, were traumatized due to the atrocities they themselves committed. Um, and he compiles all these interviews with these people, and then he starts seeing all these parallels with the Iliad. Um, huh. And it's really, really fascinating. Um where he kind of traces the the psychological steps of a soldier going berserk. Um, and like, it's all there in the Iliad. It's kind of feelings of betrayal by your commander, uh, the loss of a, a special, you know, comrade who you feel responsible for. Um, and then kind of the different symptoms of it really line up well with, with what you see from Achilles later on. But his, he focuses also a lot on Diomedes as Aristia here because right away um athena gives him rules of engagement like she says okay here's your ability to see the gods but you have to not um strike at any of the gods except aphrodite um and then later she amends that and it's like okay you can strike at Ares as well um he kind of transgresses them when he tries to to fight apollo for a minute there but he sort of mm -hmm. comes to his senses and steps back so shay is really setting uh says that homer's kind of setting Diomedes up as a foil to Achilles in this way, where you have him carrying out his Aristia while still remaining restrained, um, you know, not trying to kind of transgress his his uh, creaturely situation beyond what's been allowed to him. And you still see him kind of slowing down and taking spoils and stuff. Um, whereas when Achilles loses it, he uh, he'll never stop to strip armor or steal horses. He just keeps killing. Um, so that's an interesting aspect of Diomedes' uh, uh, rampage here that you see. No, I like comparing that later to what we'll see with Achilles about a controlled rage versus just an unleashed rage. I mm -hmm. like that. I like that can, a lot. Can I ask a maybe a, a dumb question, but just one as a first-time reader, you know, we're only five books in. Um, I was curious on why they, they said like, hey, uh, don't fight any of the gods unless it's Aphrodite. Like if it's Aphrodite, you stab her with you know with a sharp bronze spear like as soon as you can, right? Like uh, any context or any 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 comments on like why Aphrodite is okay to kill versus any of the others? Well, everyone is a bit mad at Aphrodite, I think, because it's if it's anyone's fault that this war is happening of the gods, it's hers. Um, she's the one who kind of rigs the beauty contest for herself by, <laughs> by promising Paris, the love of the world's most beautiful woman. Um, so it's just bitter. It's that's just part envy. Um, well, I also took it as the fact that, no, I, I think what Grayson said is, is absolutely correct. I think there's a, a broad bitterness towards Aphrodite. I also think, however, that Aphrodite is presented here as having, zero military prowess right you can engage her on the battlefield because she she's she's not a threat right if you engage apollo or poseidon or any of the other guys you know diomedes you'll die you'll probably die a terrible death but if you engage aphrodite you could probably pull it off <laughs> ah, okay cool and we kind of see that with her character right because then when she is stabbed by diomedes you know her response is not you know a return of violence or a rage it's basically to go whine and, and run back to Olympus. Yeah, that really strikes me as comic relief, like the way she's like, like a broken hell. You know? <laughs> right. So we do see 
so just jumping ahead, so around like 240 is where we see Pandaris basically curse his bow, which I, again, as Grayson mentioned earlier, I just found it to be a, a comical scene, right? If I don't smash this bow and fling it to the fire, the gear I packed is worthless as the wind. But poor Pandaris, right? Because then he picks up a spear and it doesn't really work out for him either. So he partners with Aeneas and they're going to go after Diomedes. And around five, no, excuse me, 320 or so, this is where you get Pandaris's death. And one of the things when I first read the Iliad, and I don't have a good pattern, like if you watch, like, so I guess to compare it to something, if you watch the epithets in Homer, right, these little phrases that compare and give you some kind of phrase like, um, you know, Hector Breaker of Horses, but there's Achilles the Breaker of Men. Homer very clearly plays with them, right? He plays with the epithets, not just to kind of fill that line for the oral bard, but also I think he tries to give you some kind of insight into the character he's giving you. Because I didn't have a very robust understanding of Homer the teacher, right? He's, he's very much trying to teach you something here. I have tried very much to try and read the deaths in the same way as well, right? That like the, these guys that suffer gruesome deaths, there's a reason. And Pandora seems to fit at least into that uh, to some degree, right? Because he's the one that broke the truce. Hmm. And so it seems somewhat fitting that he would have this gruesome death, even though I think the pushback on that would be is that, you know, what was the, what is Pandarus's actual culpability for breaking the truce when it's the gods that come down and whisper in his ear, what an amazing hmm. thing this would be if you tried to shoot Menelaus, which is basically a decree from Zeus. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I've never thought of like trying to uh, kind of map the different different deaths onto, you know, the characters in a systematic way. That I'll keep an eye on that though as I'm reading in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. You know, as I kind of revisited the Iliad through this read through, I'm not sure if I found it. There's mm -hmm. no pattern I saw that really popped through. But sometimes it just seems like the guy you're expecting to have a terrible death has one. Right, like Pandora's, you're like, there's no way this guy's going to make it out alive. There is no way. So yeah. let's look I, at like 3.30 or so. So Pandora's dies. And we've been looking at some of the things in the Iliad that are unique. So a lot of things that stand out to people since the warfare in the Iliad has gotten kicked off is one of the duels, right? Like it, it seems odd to us, like these two armies line up and then there's like a duel in no man's land. And that duel might even you know, resolve the entire conflict. But there's like these odd things where you have these duels. There's another odd thing where people have noticed like the stripping and getting of, you know, these assets of getting this loot that these guys kill someone and then they'll risk their life to grab their body so they can strip off their armor and have all these things. For a lot of first time readers, that seems very odd. Like, why are you making that risk, etc. Mm -hmm. The other thing like kind of a third point. kind of like support personnel too on hand sometimes who's whose kind of main job appears to be to you mm -hmm. know capture horses and strip armor and take it back to the ships for you as your you know as as the as the champion or as the king of your people are are doing like the close fighting yeah no i think that's very much true and i think the third thing then we see that sometimes stands out about the warfare is the role of the corpse and protecting mm -hmm. the body so when Pandarus goes down, this is like 3.30 or so, Aeneas straddled his body, proud in his fighting power like some lion, and shielded the corpse with spear and round buckler, burning to kill off any man who met him face to face. I mean, there's this, you know, what do we make of this, this kind of deep and abiding 
uh, notion that I have to protect my comrade's corpse from the enemy. It's interesting. There's, well, I mean, the idea of, of him straddling the body is interesting. There's a, I think it's in a comedy of errors by Shakespeare, but one of the characters has kind of an offhand uh, remark about how the, the Duke of the, of the city of Ephesus is in his debt because, you know, long ago I bestrayed him in the wars. Um, which, yeah, you're supposed to picture the same thing that he's, he's down or wounded or something. And that mm -hmm. this other character is standing over him, you know, straddling him, fighting off people who would take him, take him captive. But yeah, this is, so on one hand, there's a little bit of continuity here, right? If you watch like the movie Black Hawk Down, um, a large part of that military operation is undertaken to, you know, try to fight your way to these downed helicopters in the middle of Mogadishu, knowing that the the crew of these helicopters are probably dead, but, you know, with, so mostly with the intention of recovering their corpses. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, from a totally utilitarian point of view, that makes no sense as a military objective, but we still were, were willing to, you know, the U.S. commanders there were willing to spend the lives of additional men to try to recover these corpses. Um, and when they failed, it was considered such a, a dishonor and a defeat that we ended up withdrawing our military um, after, you know, news images circulated of the, the Somalians mut uh, mutilating their bodies and dragging them through the streets. Yeah, that's a fascinating parallel, right? Because that's that's what we see here in the Iliad is that there's this deep notion that like, well, I have to protect the corpse of my comrade because I want to be able to take my friend, my dead friend, back into my ranks. And then at some point when we have time, we're going to provide him the proper funeral rites that are proper to him, right, as my comrade and really as a human, right? Because that's one of those things that people, you know, just from an anthropological standpoint, the fact that humans bury their dead. Right is an interesting, mm. you know, anthropological point about us as a species, and then also like in Catholic teaching, right, we have um, burying the dead as a corporal act of mercy. Right, this is something that's very deep and abiding in our culture. The Book of Tobit talks about this, and so, you know, we see this in here that it, there's then then there's it becomes this dichotomy, this struggle, this tension between one of your comrades goes down, and it's not just that you don't want him to get looted, right, that you're going to lose this equipment. But rather, you want to be able to give him the proper funeral rites, because if you can't get that body and the enemy takes it, not only do they take the loot, but then they're going to mutilate him, right? They might chop his head off. They might, you know, pull a David against Goliath. They might do something like this, and they'll, they'll strip him. And then he not only suffers that humiliation, but also then he's deprived of the funeral rites. And the mm. reason I flag this is because we're going to see time and time again in the Iliad where the body of a comrade falling becomes then the central point of the war itself. And then later on, we actually already mentioned it, when one of the main characters of the Iliad is dead and his thumos, his spirit comes back, we actually start seeing, an in, Homer gives us an insight into maybe spiritually in the afterlife, why it's so important that these souls, these spirits receive their last rites. Yeah, my um, so I have a friend uh, named Lauren Handy, who's a, a Catholic uh, pro-life activist. She's actually um, she's actually in prison right now for uh, blocking an abortion clinic back in 2020. Um, hmm. uh, you know, was convicted and is looking at 11 years in prison uh, under the the Federal Face Act. So wow. she could certainly use your prayers. Um, but I remember talking with her once when we were doing 
uh, pro-life sidewalk counseling in DC. And she told me that um, one of her biggest inspirations, I think she might've actually said like, what made me want to be, devote my life to pro-life activism, you know, before it was anything in Catholic teaching, I think before she converted, maybe, uh, it was, um, uh, it was the, the Greek tragedy, um, Antigone. Uh, yeah, Antigone. Wow, that went yeah. right out of my head. Sorry. Where you see, you know, you see a, a kind of a female version of the the heroism that's on display from Aeneas here, where um, Antigone's brother attempts to lead a, a lead a revolt um, and take the city uh, from its from its ruler and is defeated and you know kind of as a former rebel is is to be denied funeral rites um mm -hmm. and antigone goes in the night and and sprinkles uh dust on top of his body to give him a burial um so that his his um you know shade can rest uh in the underworld and it leads to this really fascinating uh all these really fascinating dialogues about the the nature of, of conscience versus authority um and you know the need for social order versus kind of family ties and things like this um but yeah i think it's a really a really beautiful thing um and to you know burying the dead is one of the the corporal works of mercy right mm -hmm. um, yeah we pull it from you see it heavily uh in tobit is the book mm -hmm. they took from the old testament but honestly, Antigone, I mean, that's one of my favorite plays. Right now we're in the midst of this year of Homer. We're spending six years or six years. That's what it feels like. <laughs> Excuse me. Six months, right, on the Iliad and then six months on the Odyssey. But then next year, we're going to start a lot of the Greek plays. And one of the ones yeah. I'm most excited to work through is Antigone. That's a play that I read somewhat early in my formation uh, when I came into the Catholic faith and then started exploring the great books. And yeah, I think it's an incredibly powerful witness to not only like burying the dead, but Grayson, like you mentioned, it brings into question the relationship. It's one of the very first expressions of something that be, could be called natural law, right? Mm -hmm. So even if the king says, do not bury the dead, is there a law that the king and even the gods are subject to? So that Antigone burying her brother, right, giving him the last rites, is actually obeying, you know, a higher, more eternal law. And it's one of these beautiful, beautiful texts that the Greeks give us. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I'll, I'll give one more little anecdote from my my friendship with with Lauren and and her, you know, kind of the beautiful work she does, influenced by that play. But she, um, she and I actually attended a a funeral mass for um, some aborted uh, babies that were recovered. Um, and it was one of the most incredibly moving experiences of my life, thinking that, you know, to be given this funeral and this burial was the only, the only love they would ever experience. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but it was, yeah. that was something that still could be done for them, even, even after their death. And even, you know, when mm -hmm. they were beyond our help in every other way. Um, no, I think, I think that's incredibly beautiful. Hmm. That's yeah, that's heavy. That's and, and beautiful. Um well, okay, so for the for the first time ever on the history of Ascend the Great Books podcast, 
I'm going to be the one that brings us back to the text. <laughs> uh, this will be the first time ever. So I like I I have some questions for, for for you, Deacon and Grayson. Like, so we see Diomedes. I have to mention this, right? Diomedes like hits Aeneas with a boulder, uh, strikes Aeneas's thigh in the hip bone, turns into his pelvis, which sounds absolutely just brutal. Like, if you could think about that, just from a you know just a war perspective, like you're on the battlefield and that happens to you, just how actual like like horrible that is going to be as even though the text may not be as gory as is what it, it it really is in real life but i mean that just sounds brutal but then you have uh then you have uh, you know diomedes calling aphrodite a coward like and then you know attacking Di- uh, aphrodite and then even like mocking aphrodite and so my question is like have we have we ever had a presence of like a mortal mocking a god like or a goddess like this? Like, is is this something that is like normal? Like, we were just talking about the justice of of mortals to the immortals, and now we have mortals who are mocking uh, the the immortals. Like, what what what, are, what were your thoughts here? Help me help me work through this. I I think it's certainly unique, right? Because sometimes we see these brutal responses if the mortals are not don't give due deference to the immortals. I one of the ways I read this though is that Diomedes can act like this because he has the coverage of Athena, right? So Athena has mm. actually given him this permission explicitly, right? Where we'll see here in a moment where Diomedes interacts with Apollo, and that's the point where when I first read the book, I was like, okay, he's going to die. He's got out in front of his skis. His pride has gotten too far. Yeah, I thought like like you know a hundred lines ago you were you were really about to die, and and you keep you keep bailing out on it. Right. So I, I mean, the way I took it is just simply that the reason he can act like this, attack her, mock her, etc., is simply because he has the coverage of Athena. Yeah, and you get. I can't remember if it's here or if it's later when Ares is wounded, but you do get like kind of a catalog of different instances in Greek mythology where mortals succeed in wounding gods or capturing them in various ways. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is kind of the Edith Hamilton thing where like the, you know, the Greeks innovation was to bring the gods closer to humanity in a way to make them, you know, potentially objects of, of fun and of mockery. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, even if you're not directly kind of mocking a god in a sense of looking down on them, like many of Zeus's uh, kind of hijinks were sort of meant to be to be read comically um, and kind of laughed at as he sort of, you know, was climbing out windows and, and you know, face down in a dude's pool or whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mortal women. <laughs> I think we've I think we've talked about this on the podcast, but you later by later, I mean, like 400 years, mm-hmm. we'll see in Plato's dialogue, the Euthyphro where he kind of takes on the pantheon and can you actually logically have a pantheon of gods when you actually discuss it rationally, particularly when you start thinking of like, what is holiness and what does it actually mean to be holy and et cetera. And I think, you know, Grayson, what I hear you saying, and I think one way to look at the Iliad is that Homer, I think has this, you know, even 400 years earlier has this somewhat subtle critique and how he discusses the gods because he makes them seem very fickle and at times very comical and really they're at the end of the day they're almost just simply humans that just simply be immortal they don't die but they're subject to all the passions all the failures and all the trickery maybe not zeus in a certain way but to a certain degree still zeus but like you know even air you know even a aphrodite here we'll see right she's speared 
And then what she do? She runs up to Olympus whining to her mm-hmm. mother, right? Yeah. They're just very weak. They're not even like good humans. The gods aren't even examples of arete. They're not even examples of excellence. <laughs> They're like the worst of humanity. Yeah, well, they. it's interesting. They're, they, I forget which character it is, but one of the characters has a line later that's always stuck with me where he says like, you know, if we were, if we were the, if we were immortal, like the gods, we would have no opportunity to, you know, exhibit Arate to like exhibit heroism because you have to like have skin in the game in some way. Like right. the gods can't risk their lives in combat. So there's, they're incapable of, of courage or of, you know, of valor. Um, uh, I mean, Brad Pitt, the Brad Pitt movie, he has kind of this monologue about this where he's like, the gods envy us because like we have to die and they don't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like there's that like, no one will remember your name, you know, kind of line too. So yeah. one thing I will note about Aphrodite going up uh, to Mount Olympus is that she even has a mother. So mm-hmm. people that are familiar with the Aphrodite myth, like, you know, she's Venus and under her Roman name, right? She simply rose up from the sea is the typical mythology that we get. Um, but here she actually has like in the Homeric uh, mythology, at least in the Iliad, right? She actually has a mother. So if you're familiar mm-hmm. with the mythology at all, that kind of strikes you as being somewhat odd or unique because we're downstream from all classical Greek mythology. And in classical Greek mythology, she simply came up from... Yeah, Dione seems to kind of drop out later. Um mm-hmm. And then there's other things like I remember teaching this and, you know, everyone's seen the Hercules movie. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, when they would mention fate, they would be, oh, you know, the three old women who cut the thread. And I'd say, well, no, that, you know, that doesn't come up in Homer. It's it's kind of just fate. Um, that right. seems to be a later development. Correct. Mm-hmm. The other one mm-hmm. we see is um, Hephaestus in the Iliad is married to one of the graces. Mm-hmm. And then very famously, by the time you get to the Odyssey, he's actually married to Aphrodite. Right, There's that great, uh, I think it's a Velasquez painting of, of Hephaestus in his forge. And, you know, it, it's, he, Velasquez means to capture the moment where someone comes in and tells him that his wife is cheating on him again. Mm-hmm. And it's just, they capture his facial expression so well, he's just like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Um, yeah, so there is, what's interesting is, is that even though, you know, a lot of people say these two books aren't too far removed from each other when Homer actually like composed them or dictated them to a scribe, like maybe 750, 725, there is actually a development of the mythology between the two texts. Yeah. All right. So we see Aphrodite goes up, she whines. Um, One thing I noticed though, very clearly that I thought was interesting is that Grace, and this is where you mentioned there's this kind of litany of like, Oh, here are the gods that also have been, wounded by mortals or something along these lines, right? Which is kind of a unique uh, Homeric mythology that he gives us here. But one thing that really struck me is that 465, uh, Dione, right? Aphrodite's mother is trying to comfort Aphrodite. And the way that she comforts, first is she gives these narratives of like, listen, other gods have been wounded by mortals. It's not just you. But then she gives this comfort of, well, you know, Diomedes, right? He'll die in the war. Let's think about his wife. Let's think about her wailing through the nights. Let's think about how she longs for him while he's dead. And she, her, and the wife is in tears, right? Because her wedded husband is dead. And outside of just like the, 
wakes her beloved servants out of sleep was like a really good detail there too like Mm -hmm. that she you know can't hold it together well enough you know to not wake up her servants like she just can't stop from you know screaming loudly enough that no one in the house can sleep and kind of outside like the typical brutality that we see of the greek gods versus the the mortals right which we're kind of accustomed to now what really struck me here is that aphrodite the goddess of love is comforted by knowing that there will be this kind of horrific sadness in the love for a Diomedes wife because he's died in the war, right? It's like contextualized in her domain of love that someone will suffer who mm-hmm. is a lover. And that like gives her comfort. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause you could. Yeah. I kind of just, I kind of read that as just like nastiness, but the way you presented it there is, is kind of an interesting take on it. Um, that it's sort of meant not as like, oh, well, you know, don't worry, he'll die and his wife will be miserable. It's it's more of like bringing her attention back to her own proper sphere, um, which is what Zeus kind of tells her to do later is like, you're not, you're not a, you're, you're a non-combatant Aphrodite. Like, please focus on, on matters, <laughs> of the, on matters of, of love and, and the home. Yeah, he says that right at like um, 490 or so. He says, fighting is not for you, my child, the works of war. See to the works of marriage, the slow fighters of longing. Athena and blazing Ares will deal with all the bloodshed. So this kind of raises the question, I think, particularly for first-time readers. And one of the questions that I think I mentioned that I, I really kind of wanted to get out of book five is, what exactly is the ambit of Athena? Because we think we pick her, picture her as like the goddess of wisdom, but then like even in this line, right? It's Athena and Blazing Ares, who's the god of war, will deal with the bloodshed, and we actually see both Ares and Athena being combatants, right? We see Athena very clearly getting on the armor. She actually has the shield of Zeus. We see very famously towards the end of this, she's going to engage Ares, and she always gets the better of him. So how do we, maybe this might be a good point to kind of interject this or ask this question is like, how, what is the actual patronage to borrow that term ambit scope of Athena? And why do we think she always gets the better of Ares who is actually the God of war? Well, I'll give you like a flat, maybe a flat read or like a first time read is, is just, uh, you know, Athena is, is of wisdom so i think she like always outsmarts him mm-hmm. um you know so like just from just a, a a raw take here would be that she she just is always like she's playing his game but just playing it better and because she's just wiser um i don't know but that was just kind of my first take one uh one interesting thing i, I think this is um I think I read a, this in the the introduction to the Richmond Lattimore translation. Um, but he talks about one of the tensions here, kind of between the time in which this text is being received uh, in its, you know, in its final form and the time in which it's, you know, taken place, which, you know, my, like, kind of just to keep it straight in my head, it, like, takes place roughly at the time of the Book of Judges and is written down roughly at the time of the Book of Ezekiel. Um, mm-hmm but one of the tensions there is that 
Um, you've seen a movement in in both warfare and politics toward something more, a little more democratic, and where the the kind of masses of people have a larger role to play. Um, you see, you know, by the time it's written down, you've got kind of very early um, democratic institutions starting to form in Athens, um, and warfare is now conducted primarily by phalanxes, um, not by champions kind of stepping out and challenging each other the way you see in the Iliad. So, in a way, it's like looking back at this bygone era where um, things were more individualistic and more aristocratic. Um, and you can have like a ton of debate about this, but there seems to be an element in which it's kind of critiquing that and also sort of expressing nostalgia for that, um, that Ooh. world that's gone and that's been sort of um, supplanted. Which is interesting, right? Because if you look at like kind of very, very, very current day, very online, um, you know, Iliad scholarship that you get from, you know, right wing Twitter anons, uh, <laughs> such as a certain, you know, pseudonymous author who I, I don't want to name on the podcast, uh, <laughs> who's kind of hovering over, over uh, ancient Greek scholarship at the moment. Um, you know, he, he's very focused on this idea of like the Iliad as this place where aristocrats could kind of bring their full abilities to bear and, and um, show their excellence and not be restrained by kind of the great mass of just, you know, undifferentiated yeasty, you know, nobodies. Um, but I think the interesting thing is that the Iliad actually dramatizes that tension within its own text in a lot of ways. Um, no, I agree. I think hmm. yeah, to your point and also to Adam's, I guess the thesis that I would, sorry, I would I was, sorry, real quick. I, I forgot what I was talking about for a second. I wanted to tie that back to the, the Aries and Athena thing. So I think that maybe is one reason that Athena always comes out on top is that, you know, she's the goddess of, of strategy um, in warfare, as opposed to, you know, being the goddess as opposed to Ares, who's kind of the god of just like berserk warrior rage, um, mm. which may have in some ways been like a better asset um, when warfare is more aristocratic and more individualistic. Um, but at least by the time Homer's writing, you've kind of seen a shift toward Athena's style of warfare being more more helpful. No, I I, I completely agree with that. And I think that's the the best read is that Athena, that wisdom is presented then as strategy in war. And it's a wisdom kind of as Adam mentioned, right? That it's it's applied to war and she always gets the best of Ares. Who then also is, you know, he's talked about as being chaotic. He's a butcher, right? He really is that kind of soul individualistic, just simple rage, but it just doesn't work against Athena. And I think there is a critique there. And I think Grayson, you've played that out pretty well. I'd have to think about that more, but there really is a critique there that this just kind of berserker, full strength, raw power falls to wisdom. And I don't know, I we're halfway through. One thing that occurs to me then is if we're seeing that parallel in the gods, are we not going to see that parallel amongst the mortals? Mm -hmm. Because clearly the, the rage, right, is going to be Achilles. If I had to pick a figure for wisdom, I'm going to pick Odysseus. Mm hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. that might be a case where you kind of have to to read the the two texts together kind of as one long work, maybe. Um, yeah. yeah. 
But yeah, there's in terms of the Iliad itself, there's not really many places, if I'm remembering correctly, where you see, you know, a, a an alternative to the aristocratic individualistic mode of warfare. There are moments where you'll see a wounded champion kind of fall back into his phalanx mm-hmm. and the person attacking him will kind of have to fall back a little bit because he can't sort of break through this, you know, wall of shields and spears that's shielding his his quarry. But you don't really ever see, like, large groups of soldiers engage each other. It's all these kind of one-on-one and two-on-one fights. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that was one thing that, yeah, that I, that was a question of mine when I first read it in the early books was like, wait, what is the warfare actually like? Because you're getting this like over uh, over individualistic warfare of duels and et cetera. And the phalanxes aren't, I can't remember, they're not even explicitly mentioned until much later. In my memory, later when the Achaeans are fighting and the Trojans and Ajax is there and the ships and et cetera, it will mention the phalanxes several times. Mm-hmm. But particularly here at the beginning when you're getting this, you know, Aristia, this Arate, this excellence, it's individuals stepping up who seemingly are leading the entire war by themselves by single-handedly slaughtering, you know, whoever they're against, right? <laughs> uh, so I, I had a quick question for you guys. Um, on about, like, 522, 524, we, we see Apollo, like, call, he's called to blazing Ares. Ares, Ares, destroyer of men, reeking blood, stormer of ramparts. Can't you go and drag that man from the fighting? That daredevil Diomedes... He'd fight Father Zeus, and so when when I hear him say that, I, I, like I think, okay, is this being hyperbolic? Is he calling Diomedes courageous that he would even fight Zeus? Is he calling Diomedes uh, stupid that he would even think about fighting Zeus at all? Like that he would that he would like? I wasn't sure how to interpret that, um, and so maybe you guys can. Help me out there. Yeah, it's an echo. I'm not going to see the line real fast, but it's like an echo of Aphrodite, right? When Aphrodite goes up to Olympus. Yeah, actually, so I found it. It's actually 408 or so. When she finally goes up to uh, Olympus wounded, she says that daredevil Diomedes, he'd mm. fight Father Zeus. Mm-hmm. So he's Apollo's echoing that. Now, Apollo, though, is standing in for uh, Troy. And so, you know, he's contrary to Athena. And so, again, I think here that that a mortal striking an immortal is a disbalance, right? It's a disorder in in the kind of hierarchy of things. And so without knowing that Athena has kind of given him the green light or the permission to actually act in this way, um, I think the gods are reacting that there's been almost a violation, almost a, a heresy that has happened for Diomedes to do this. Yeah, you have like some the line like something superhuman is interesting that he's kind of going beyond what's proper for him. I think Lattimore translate that translates that as like more than man, um, mm-hmm. which is an interesting phrase that means about the same thing. Um, and it's funny when you see, um, you know, when you see him sort of lose his cool and try to uh, try to fight Apollo to get to Aeneas's body or what he thinks is Aeneas's body. Um, you know, Apollo, whereas he's able to wound, um, Aphrodite pretty easily, uh, you see Apollo just sort of bat him aside like three times, like he's a, (laughs) like he's a fly or something. Um, yeah, yeah, I think there's, 
this is my like pet theory that this is uh but i think it's funny that uh in in rocky his opponent's name is apollo uh apollo creed like it's it's huh. he's he literally has to like box a god um which huh. is why i like the first one better than rocky 2 because like i feel like seeing him win is almost a betrayal of kind of the spirit of the film because the whole point of it is he's you know a mere mortal plucked from obscurity and given the chance to fight with a god um Hmm. so kind of the the outcome is predetermined it's just a question of how he'll um how he'll carry himself uh against the the sort of bludgeonings of fate um and if you don't get the if you don't get the message you have apollo creed you know he's he's not only you know the the greek god apollo he's also you know this this kind of standard against which you have to measure yourself right um mm -hmm. Uh, this this sort of thing that that challenges you to put into practice that which you believe. Um, I love Rocky; yeah. it's like my favorite movie. <laughs> no, I, I just watched. Um, I just watched a lot of the. I watched Rocky two through five or four mm -hmm. up to the Russian uh, with my kids for like family movie time. Like each Sunday, mm -hmm. we have family movie time, and we yeah. just watched the Rockies, which means my. Uh, I have three little boys are constantly punching each other now uh, all oh, the time. Yeah. That <laughs> is worth it, yeah. right? I mean, that's that yeah. thuma, that's that spirit, right? Yeah. So I, I enjoy, I enjoy the uh, the tethering to the Rocky narratives. Those are good. I wrote an article about Rocky and the Iliad years ago. I'll have to send it to you. That'd be um, good. No, I yeah. actually like that. Yeah. So we have, um, so you have Aeneas. You know, he, as Adam mentioned, he's wounded. Uh, we have this kind of interesting thing where there's like a phantom Aeneas that's put on the battlefield. And then around 540 or so, Sarpedon kicks in and actually taunts Hector. And Can this I is really about the phantom thing real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but this is... No, so no, no, go, no, go for it. Have you, ever read, uh, have you ever read the fragment of the novel C.S. Lewis started writing about the, the Trojan War? No, I didn't know he had one. Yeah, so there's a there's a collection you can buy. It's called the... The book's called The Dark Tower, um, and it has a few of his kind of minor works. One of them is uh, a novel he started called the dark tower. That was going to be a fourth book in the space trilogy. Huh. I think it was, I think it was going to be the second and he abandoned that and wrote Paralandra instead, but it was, it's kind of about time travel and he wrote about 80 pages of it. And it's really, really interesting. Um, and then there was a whole scandal over whether Walter Hooper, his literary executor, like forged this to like keep himself relevant, um, huh. like lasted 10 years. Um, and it seems like he didn't, but anyway, uh, there's a few short stories, and then there's this fragment of a novel he started about the Trojan War, where it's the the main character is is Menelaus, and it starts with him like inside the Trojan horse, and it's not explained to you what's going on at first. You kind of start in medias res, so all you know is like character is in a cramped space with like other bodies pressed against him, and they need to be really quiet, and it's it's really well written. Um, but apparently, like, given the fragments he wrote, like, where he wanted to take this was that um, the the thing that the sort of phantom Aeneas is called an Eidolon. Um, hmm. And there was a theory that some, like, Greek uh, uh, philosopher later or thinker put forward that... Um, Helen never went to Troy that they, you know, the ship stopped in, I think like Alexandria on the way or something or somewhere in Egypt on the way. And that the real Helen stayed there and that an Eidolon of her was brought to Troy. So hmm. the, the plot was going to be that, um, 
Menelaus finds Helen in Troy and, you know, she's aged quite a bit and isn't nearly as beautiful as she was after 10 years. After 10 years was going to be the name of the novel. Um, okay. And then they, you know, stop in Egypt on the way back and the, you know, Egyptian priests show him this, this Eidolon of her that's, you know, as beautiful as the day that she was carried away. And he kind of has to choose between accepting this illusion of his wife as, as like perfect and unspoiled um, where, you know, the Egyptians tell her that, tell him that's the real Helen um, hmm. or like taking the woman in front of him with all her flaws and all the, you know, ravages of age upon her and like trying to rebuild their marriage after all this, uh, after all this bloodshed and chaos. Um, it would have been a very interesting book, I think. But Yeah, that's it. a shame that he didn't finish that. That would be wonderful. Because yeah. I do think that, you know, one of the things that I constantly struggle with in the Iliad is, is simply understanding the culpability of Helen. Mm -hmm. understanding what because i i read the i read the iliad as very fatalistic and i have a lot of questions about like really at the end of the day what level of agency and decision making does any mortal have with the fate of the gods because as we move into the odyssey you know later in this kind of year of homer i think the odyssey is a, a much more mature text that has a lot to say about human agency and humans and even that book kicks off with zeus kind of being like why do all the mortals blame us for their problems like it's their own mm -hmm. decision we don't do anything and like if you just read the iliad and you go into the odyssey you're like it, it's almost comical right his little statement because you're like yeah you guys like they can't do anything without the gods approving it yeah. so one of the things i've always wondered about and that c.s lewis uh, book i think would be intriguing is just like what really is the culpability of helen because we've seen throughout the ages that people take this in different ways throughout the renaissance helen was it was fatalistic right they talk they'll talk about um, you know, Paris raping Helen, that she doesn't want to go. It's not really her decision. And we even see this in the Iliad, where you know, when Paris went back after his duel with Menelaus, like, she doesn't have anything nice to say about Paris. She doesn't want to sleep with him. And it's very clear that, like, Aphrodite has to force her into this relationship. But she also blames herself, which is weird, because she, mm -hmm. she certainly has plenty of reason to say, like, none of this is my fault. But every time she she kind of mentions herself, she's like, "Oh, I'm a whore. I'm a slut. Like this is all my fault." Um, it's just very interesting. Um, she does. It's a really interesting dichotomy between like how like you know. So a lot of people read it like, "Well, it was her decision to leave with Paris," and then she realizes this is a terrible mistake. But then Aphrodite basically like locks her into it. I don't know. It's a it's a question I have every time I read the Iliad is like how much you actually lean into the culpability of Helen. Yeah, I think there's. I think we've seen kind of a, a resurgence in this attempt to kind of understand the pre-modern mind a little more, which is interesting. Like most, you know, most kind of period piece dramas of, of various kinds, movies or TV shows or whatever, just kind of give you modern people wearing, you know, old timey costumes. But then right. you'll see something like the movie, uh, like the movie, the North man from a few years ago, um, mm -hmm. where it is set in this kind of like Norse pagan society and the main characters, actions like don't really make sense from a modern perspective right like he seems to just kind of act as though he's he's on rails and doesn't really have a choice about what he's doing in his life um but i think that's like a pretty pretty faithful representation of how you know pre-modern people might have might have viewed themselves um like charles taylor talks about this in um his book a secular age where moderns he says have kind of a buffered view of the self where like the only thing that exists is totally inert matter and then human minds. Um, whereas 
you know, pre-modern people had a porous view of the self where there are like lots of outside influences, um, you know, both mental in terms of like gods or spirits and even just material, like where, you know, the planets and, and different, you know, elements in the world had sort of influences upon people. Um, mm -hmm. And that these all kind of did things to you and could influence your, your actions and your options. Yeah, I mean, we even see that, I think, most famously with Hector, right? I mean, he tries to, we'll kind of see this, he 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 tries to, you know, comfort those on the Trojan side, even his wife, by being like, listen, no one can actually take me down before fate says so, Yeah, right? I can actually just keep going and fighting and doing what I need to do in defense of Troy, because until fate decides, then I can't be taken down. So why have fear? Like, why fear this? Mm-hmm. Which book is it that that Hector has the the conversation with his his wife and you know holds his holds his infant son in his arms? Like is that is that after no, this or before this? It's the next one. It's book okay, six. That's, right that's my favorite. That's my favorite scene. It, it's a powerful, powerful scene. It really is, and I think it really sets up. I think after that book, book six, which we'll get into uh, next week, we that's really where I realized Hector, or excuse me, Homer the teacher, comparing mm -hmm. Achilles and Hector. Yeah. Right. It, it, if you compare book six to book one, like we just see this, we really get a, a comparison of who Hector actually is. Yeah. There's a, I think it's in, I think it's in um, the everlasting man by GK Chesterton, but he has kind of a chapter about the Iliad. Um, and what he talks about is how, you know, in the, in the sort of immediate aftermath, um, Achilles was considered this kind of great hero in ancient Greece, but that it's, it's Hector who has the real legacy. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. no one after that wants to look back to Achilles, but everyone wants to look back to Hector. Like, you know, the Romans say that they were founded by, by Aeneas and Trojan refugees. The, the British will say that they were founded by Brutus and another band of Trojan refugees. Um, right. You know, Sir, Sir Hector in Arthurian legend is, is his name is Hector. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, in uh, the Song of Roland, uh, like Roland wields Hector's sword uh, against the against the the um, the Muslims at at the Battle of Roncesvalles. So it's like Hector really is the one who has this legacy that carries forward, whereas Achilles kind of just drops off. Yeah, he does. It's an interesting thing because we'll there's a few things that come to mind there. Like one, you know, at some point we'll read the Republic. And that's one of that's one of. Uh, I'll be sixty three by the time we do that. <laughs> we make there, but well, in the Republic, like that's an interesting thing to to take up because uh, Plato seems to, through the mouth of Socrates, be critiquing Homer that Homer has Homer the teacher failed because too many of the young men of Athens want to be like Achilles, right? Mm. If he was setting up Hector, did he do that well or not? Why are these men failing? But you're absolutely correct. Then, like if you look though at the medieval mind. Right, the medieval mind, it's Hector, 100%, right? He's one of the, if you're familiar, there's the devotion of the nine worthies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Hector's the first of the nine worthies. You mentioned uh, several good pieces of literature. The other one that came to my mind was um, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. And in the opening of that one, it also talks about that they draw their lineage to Troy, right? Troy what really was what gave the world civilization, right, through Rome. The, the Achaeans are not seen as the good guys. And Hector really is that, that beginning narrative, that nascent understanding of arete. What does it actually mean to be an excellent human? And I think book six really plays that out. 
have this insane idea of, for like a series of comic books or like young adult novels about the nine worthies where they like join up and mm-hmm. go on adventures together. <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. awesome. Make like great young adult novels for like kids in classical schools. Yeah, absolutely. That would be, that would be awesome. I just bought my kids the, um, there's a graphic novel of the Iliad and of the Odyssey now that track really closely to the books. I just bought both of them for my kids and been reading them to them. That's awesome. They're really good. They being speared in the face though has a little different context when you actually, you know, see it drawn out. But yeah. <laughs> anyway. so we see it speaking of Hector at 5:40 we actually get a critique of Hector, right? This is Sarpedon. Um Hector, you know, where has it gone, right? That high courage you always carried in your heart. And really as a reader, it really kind of draws you to like, oh wait, where is Hector? Like what's going on? Like Diomedes is on a war path. And you know, I'm very sympathetic to Hector. I think that he he gets his uh, leash yanked a lot by the gods, whether he's brave or he's a coward, etc. has a lot to do with whatever divine influence is, is upon him. But one of the things I did find interesting in the text, as it mentions Hector, is that when Pandarus broke the truce, it was kind of odd to me that, like, Hector didn't, like, stand up and be like, no, 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 like, that's not what we want. Like, you know, the whole war could be over. And I've always kind of wondered about that, that when Pandarus actually shoots Menelaus and the whole truce comes crumpling apart and Agamemnon's obviously using it for leverage, that Hector's very quiet. And you kind of imagine that he would like step up and try and undo this or like offer Pandarus to them and be like, nope, that's not us here. Take this idiot archer, like, you know, do whatever you want to with him. Like, you know, we're not breaking the truce. He's very quiet during this time period. Yeah, Hector's very... Hector's flawed in a lot of ways, which I think makes him a much more interesting character. He, yeah, he gets kind of shamed like this on a few occasions and like tends to kind of overcorrect when he is uh, in interesting mm-hmm. ways. And then there's also like the, the kind of interesting angle within the, the sort of Trojan um, alliance uh, where Troy, you know, the way it's presented in the book, Troy has all these kind of allied city states that have sent troops to fight alongside them and you know the Lycians are essentially like shaming him here for kind of using them as cannon fodder when the Trojan native soldiers are the ones with the real skin in the game um Mm -hmm. it's kind of an interesting like echo of of the actual history perhaps where um you know Troy appears to have been kind of a tributary city-state of the Hittite Empire um Whereas in the Iliad, it's obviously presented as kind of the the chief city of the area, um, which doesn't appear to be borne out by the archaeological record. But the idea of you know the defenders of Troy being drawn from this network of city states in the in the neighboring area seems to be pretty accurate to to how this conflict would likely have been fought. I agree. Let's look at um, around like seven thirty or so, seven twenty. We get a really interesting. So we've we spoke about these duels. So we get an interesting duel between what is basically Zeus's son, Sarpedon, Sarpedon, and the son of the son of Zeus, mm-hmm. which is actually Heracles, or we know him more often as Hercules, his son. And this is where we get these, like, you know, this, this kind of banter back and forth about, you know, what's your genealogy and what's my genealogy and X, Y, and Z. But the thing I found really fascinating here. Is like and it's kind of a throwaway line. It's before like seven forty. Is that um, 
Pericles' son is talking about like, well, by the way, he's already raised the walls of Troy. He widowed all her streets. And it's just like this throwaway line that Hercules or Heracles has actually already sacked Troy. And not only was Troy sacked, it was actually only sacked one generation ago. Because hmm. it, it's, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I'm happy for pushback, but Troy, in a lot of ways, in the narrative, is presented as like the city that cannot fall, right? Like you, you, you cannot pierce its walls. You're not going to make it through, etc. And it's interesting to me, like, here's this line. And my understanding of the mythology, in short, is simply that, uh, going back, that Zeus basically had Apollo and Poseidon serve the king of Troy, which would have been Priam's father. Mm -hmm. And they had to serve him for, I think, a year. And so they serve him. And in serving him, uh, the king was supposed to reciprocate with certain things. And the king doesn't do that. He basically gets the benefit of having Apollo and Poseidon as servants. And one of the things that they produced was actually the walls of Troy. So the walls of Troy are actually divinely built. And so he reneges on the deal. Apollo sends a plague, which seems to be Apollo's uh, theme, if we remember book one. It's his MO. Yeah. Yeah. And Poseidon sends a sea monster that can only be satisfied by the king's, you know, daughter, right? So the sea monsters just continue to to rack everything until he can satiate his hunger on the king's daughter. So then he engages, he being the king of Troy, engages Hercules, Heracles, to come in and save Troy. And he defeats the sea monster, he saves the princess, etc. And the king of Troy, again, reneges on the deal and doesn't give Heracles his proper reward. And so Heracles then leads an army and sacks Troy. And what's most interesting about that is, is that this is not ancient, you know, this isn't Nestor going on a long story about, you know, (laughs) a long, long time ago, this thing happened. This is the last generation, because one of the things that's interesting about the myth is that a lot of the fathers of the Achaeans were in that army. Mm -hmm. So Achilles' father, Peleus, sacked Troy last generation alongside Hercules. And also the other one that was there was um, uh, Ajax's father. What was his name? Telamon? Because isn't Ajax like great Ajax? Telamon. Ajax. So his father. So it's it's just fascinating to me because it's kind of a throwaway line and Homer's original audience, you know, would have already known the myth. But for us, and this is kind of my, my raw take when I was reading it for the first time, was that you just feel like Troy can't fall, right? It has these walls that are divinely built. But, oh yeah, just by the way, actually our fathers sacked it last generation and we're the sons and we're actually back. I think it gives some historical context to Troy and the Iliad that you just really don't know if you don't know the myth. Yeah. I think the I think the best stories tend to be kind of a younger generation having to in some way carry forward the same fight that their fathers were in um, while also, you know, grappling with that legacy and, and, you know, atoning for their sins in some way. Like you see that in all of the sort of stories that resonate best with us. I mean, you know, Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings tends to resonate with people a lot more than, um, you know, a lot more people read Lord of the Rings than Silmarillion um, where like you have this, this generation of, of heroes who, you know, are carrying forward the same struggle that 
previous generations have been in, um, you know, fighting against Sauron rather than Morgoth, um, but, you know, who have all this baggage of what's come before. And then, you know, you have the original Star Wars trilogy kind of being superior to the prequels where, again, you have, you have um, kind of this inherited struggle that the newer generation has to carry on. And then even in, uh, you know, even in like Harry Potter, um, kind of his his parents uh the, the parents generation had previously fought against uh against Voldemort and then you have kind of the Grindelwald um story before that um do you yeah, think that I think, those, I think those kind of stories resonate because they're very true to life like we're all kind of thrown into um the world in the midst of a an ongoing tradition that we didn't choose and we have to kind of make the best of it Grayson do you think that dovetails into why they have this perception that the generation before them was always greater, right? Like, like we can't pick up the two, the boulder. Now we can't actually hurl the spear like they did. Like the generation before us was always a generation of greater men. And we're always trying to step up to what that greater generation did. And you see that, I mean, is there not a microcosm of this in Diomedes? Hmm. Athena yeah. places within him, his father's strength. Yeah, and what's he trying to do? He's trying to live up to the legacy of his father. Yeah, I think so. Well, let's look at that. So look at 840 or so. Athena is going to come down and enter the war. And I think we've we've correctly stated that she is this um, wartime strategy. She has wisdom applied to this military prowess. And she does get the best of Ares. One thing I would mention, since we've already mentioned the uh, Troy documentary with Brad Pitt several times, <laughs> another thing that sticks out to me is, you know, that that movie, I think, is what most of our imaginations are, is they use this kind of classical Greek Spartan armor. That's what we imagine they're fighting in. And I remember reading this where Athena gets ready for war, and you realize they look very different than that, right? Her shield, right, which is Zeus's shield, which has a Gorgon's monstrous head on it, but it has tassels all attached to it, right? It's this kind of colorful thing. And also their helmets have horns on them, right? Forked with twin horns. This is a much more, um, if we think about the kings, like Odysseus is the king of Ithaca. A lot of times even Fagels will translate it as chieftains, right? This is actually still a very tribal culture and actually looks very different than like the classical Spartan armor that I think most of us imagine. Yeah, there's... There's one aspect of the Iliad that I, I remember reading about. I don't know all the details of this, but it's that Homer doesn't actually know how chariots were used in warfare. Um, like he knows chariots were used in warfare in this you know period hundreds of years ago, but he doesn't exactly know like the tactics that one would use with chariots. So he kind of misrepresents how chariots would have been used in warfare. Um, because it's interesting, you have this... You know, again, you're kind of two steps removed where you have this, it's being written in this period of Greek history that's different from what we would picture. And then it's taking place in a period that's even further removed from that. Correct. Yeah, that's interesting because if you look at chariots, they're mainly, they're not really ever used. Well, one, we're not really getting a whole lot of information so far about the phalanx overall in this kind of coordinated military attack. It's all individualistic. And then really the chariots are used to either chase someone down individualistically or to retreat. Like they're mm -hmm. never actually used as part of like a larger strategy alongside the phalanx. That's an, that's an interesting observation. Hmm. So in, um, 
So with Athena, we get her dressed for war. It's interesting to me that she actually goes by and gets a blessing by Zeus to make sure what she's about to do, Zeus is okay with. This is around like 870 or so. Yeah. And this again, you get a juxtaposition between Athena and Ares, right? Ares, like 875 or so, he's a maniac. He has no sense of justice, right? He's a butcher. He's chaotic. But Athena is certainly his match. That's at 880. The queen of plunder, she's the one, his match, a marvel at bringing Ares down in pain. And so that's exactly what she does. But before she does that, I, I was really fascinated by this interaction she has with Diomedes. So Diomedes, because he has this gift to see the gods, sees that Ares is alongside Hector pushing the Trojan front forward. And so Diomedes has cried out to all his men, stand back stand back. Like you don't understand like that. That's a God. And so when Athena comes down, she critiques him for his cowardice. This is like 920, right? She says, and she actually invokes Diomedes' father against him, right? That you're half the size of his father. And he was <laughs> short and slight, but he was a fighter. And so look, here's Diomedes cowering. I already gave you your father's strength. And here you are. You're being a coward. You haven't lived up to his reputation, which I think is a theme, Grayson, that you were uh, pointing out earlier, right? And she actually says at the end, about a little bit uh, before 940, so you're no offspring of Tydeus, right? The Galliot battle-hardened uh, warrior. What's interesting to me about this passage is that Diomedes appears to be a coward only because he's following her advice. Here she comes and she critiques him for being a coward and being a lesser son, right, of his father. And Diomedes, I think, response is very interesting is that it's very measured. And maybe this goes back, I think, maybe to one of your points, Grace, and that Diomedes has, you know, this warrior spirit, this Thumas under control, as opposed to, say, maybe later what we'll see with Achilles. Because Diomedes has a very measured response to her which about halfway through, he says, it's your own command still ringing in my ears, forbidding me to fight the immortals head on. And then Athena responds, right? True son of Tydeus, Diomedes, joy of my heart. Yeah, he was testing him a little bit. Yeah, thank you. That's, see, that was the question is like, has Athena made a mistake in misreading Diomedes? Mm -hmm. Or does she read him correctly and she's testing his obedience and piety. And I think it's the latter. There's also an interesting contrast with um, uh, Aeneas, or not Aeneas, with Hector earlier as well, when, when uh, is it Sarpedon kind of shames him for not, you know, being as present in the fighting as he should. He's immediately like, he's right, I'm a coward. Like, I need to go fight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is interesting because it's, that's, ju that's juxtaposed. So then when Sarpedon is injured, he cries out for Hector. Mm -hmm. Right, to come and save him. And Hector goes marching past him and doesn't say a word, but just goes forward, right, to it has some line in there, just like to brutalize the Achaeans, mm -hmm. right? He just marches past him to go do this. Now I, I agree with you, uh, Grayson. I, I read this as a test of Diomedes' piety and obedience. And he passes with flying colors. He remains obedient to her, he responds in respect and piety. And then she's the, you know, he becomes the joy of her heart. And then we get this wonderful, wonderful scene in which they both climb into the chariot together to fight Ares, which I think is just the zenith of this book. 
even though I will mention it as a comical side. So Diomedes and Athena are sitting here talking to each other, having this dialogue. Diomedes has someone who's in the chariot with him. And Athena just chunks him out. Yeah. Like, grabs him and just chunks him. Right? Um, down at, that's at like a little bit for like 970. She just like throws, she, with a twist of her wrist, the man hit the ground. She just, mm-hmm. she just she's having this like wonderful back and forth with Diomedes and then just chunks this other dude out of the chariot. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. You have this line here, like the big oaken axle groaned beneath the weight. Um, so you get the sense that the gods are, you know, heavier or more massive than humans somehow. Like, I don't know if they're necessarily like taller, um, since there are other places, even in this book, where a character will say like, oh, someone's killing a lot of our men. Is that a god or not? I can't tell be- behind the armor. Um, Although the gods can kind of take different shapes too, so maybe that's what's going on there. You know, maybe when they appear in their own aspect, they're like, you know, fourteen feet tall or something. <laughs> well, let me let me take a page out of your book, uh, Grayson, and make a tethering here to C.S. Lewis, because when I when I say or when I read that Athena, right, the the chariot groaned, that oaken axle groaned beneath the weight. The way I read that originally was that she's more real than the mortals are, right? There's something more real to her. And it reminded me very much of the narrative in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, when the damned are allowed to go up to heaven and the damned realize that everything in heaven is more real than they are, that the the damned are actually shades and that their weight won't even bend the grass of heaven, right? What 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 is divine is more real than what is mortal. And that's actually how I originally read that is that athena is simply more real than diomedes i like that Mm. that's my that's my c.s lewis plug um nice we all three c.s lewis in book five of the iliad nice but adam yours adam your plug i don't think got enough attention when you when you talked about the fact that what we're seeing here are men with chests Mm -hmm. uh, which comes from c.s lewis's abolition of man and I, I think you're absolutely correct that what a lot of people don't realize about that analogy is that he's running a platonic soul there, right? Where the spirited part of the soul is the part that seeks honor and glory and this fame. And what we're seeing here in Homer is a nascent understanding of that soul. Because I think I still think soul is a very thick word for Homer. I don't think we're quite there yet in the Greek tradition. But that thumos, that spirit, does seek honor and glory. And that's what C.S. Lewis sees as lacking in modern man. Yeah. It's funny, though, how this, you know, I, I just, the, you know, I'm kind of realizing this for the first time here, but it's funny how this sort of can't be an end in itself, how it, it kind of exhausts itself in some way where, you know, we reading this read the Iliad and are like, ah, yeah, back when, you know, men were men, right? Um, and then, you know, but even Homer is saying like, yes, this was back when men were men, you know, when, you know, Nobody could lift this boulder now, but Diomedes could lift it easy back then. And then even the characters within the Iliad are being shamed for not living up to their own parents, right? Like, oh, this was when men were men, when Heracles and his band mm-hmm. sacked Troy, right? It's like, it's just funny that that there's this kind of nascent, you know, movement on the, the you know, very online, right? That will look, wants to look back to the Iliad for, you know, this aristocratic masculine you know, greatness and the characters in the Iliad are looking back to an earlier, you know, more <laughs> right. masculine, greater greatness. Yeah, it is. Cause you even, but they themselves it, feel inadequate. <laughs> correct. 
So Aries, so then this was kind of the, the, the picture that really caught my imagination the first time I read the Iliad uh, in book five was, you know, Athena helping Diomedes to spear Ares in the gut. And again, as Adam mentioned earlier, she completely outwits him, right? He doesn't even understand that it's her. And so around 990, right, deep in Ares' bowels where the belt clenched him tight, right, she helps Diomedes spear him. And again, Ares is whose lust for slaughter never dies. So again, as Grayson pointed out earlier, I really think that Ares is that chaotic butcher of, even though he's the god of war, He's that chaotic butcher uh, that really has no sense of justice about him, which is then compared to Athena, who I think is just for the most part, but very strategic in her uh, approach to war, right, and strategy. And then Ares, I mean, he goes up to heaven, or excuse me, that's probably a strong word. He goes up to Olympus and just crumples, right? Homer actually says that he turns into a flight of self-pity and just, you know, goes on this tirade against Athena, which I think if you're not used to who Ares is, this is a very capturing scene that this this god of lust, of slaughter and chaos and bloodshed is now whining like a child in front of Zeus, really saying that, like, listen, you, Zeus, favor Athena above all others, right? This senseless daughter, you let her do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. One thing I would note is right before, this is a long book, by the way, in the yeah, this is a, yeah, it is. It's a very long book, over a thousand lines. But right we're before, there. We're almost there. We're almost there. Right before 1010, I mentioned earlier, if you, for those who are familiar with the Platonic writings about Euthyphro, the dialogue of Euthyphro, which really kind of digs into, can you rationally have a pantheon? I wrote out my notes right before 1010. You know, Ares is talking to Zeus, and he says, We everlasting gods, oh, what chilling blows we suffer thanks to our conflicting wills. Mm-hmm. And I think, and Grayson, you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, is like, and this is something that's also taken up the youth fro, is like, well, if you are mortal and you want to be pious towards, you know, the divine, one of the problems is, is that the divine is a conflicted creature. It's mm-hmm. multiple different gods that conflict with each other. And the Iliad's a great example of that, right? The gods are split on whether Troy should fall. So if you want to be a pious mortal, it's like, well, wait, who do I worship? Who do I give sacrifices to? I think Plato picks this up uh, pretty strongly as a critique against the pantheon in favor of monotheism. In some ways, it's kind of an easier cosmos to live in, right? Because if, you know, if you're a good person and something bad happens to you, it's like, oh, well, the gods, you know, one of the gods must be angry with me or the gods must be kind of acting at cross purposes, right? Or perhaps I, you know, didn't honor the right gods in the right proportion or whatever, whereas... You know, if you if you have kind of a unified conception of divinity and you, you know, are a pious person and bad things happen to you, well, then you have to write the book of Job. <laughs> right. And and your uh you know, unified divinity also happens to be characterized as love. Yeah. Right. How do you handle the problem of uh suffering, right? The problem of evil, theodicy. Not the Odyssey, <laughs> but the Odyssey, right? <laughs> That's um, a very good one. Yeah, we were talking. I had a discussion the other day with someone about the Odyssey, uh, which is the book written by Homer, and they brought up the problem of theodicy, which is the problem of evil. And I had to like put a ban on it. I was like, okay, we can't, we cannot talk about the theodicy when talking about Homer's Odyssey, or we're all going to get really confused about what we're actually talking about right now. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I would point out here in ten twenty, 
is this is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, myth that we get for Athena's origin. And so just to kind of play out this myth real fast, is there's different there's different variations of the myth. And in some of them, uh, you know, Zeus, uh, as he always does, impregnated a goddess and you know, her the son or the offsprings would be greater than Zeus, and so he swallows her. And another another myth then Zeus is just simply by himself. But in all of them, we should mention that Athena emerges from the head of Zeus. So Athena is not born of a woman per se, but rather, if I remember correctly, Zeus has this splitting headache. Hephaestus helps him to basically split his head open to relieve the pain, and out comes Athena, right? An adult dressed for war. And so she really does epitomize Zeus's wisdom, which I think is important because I think you do see a father-daughter intimacy between the two, right? Ares is correct, right? Zeus does give Athena almost everything that she wants. And how much daylight there really is between the two, between Zeus and his own wisdom, there's, you know, some debate. The other thing I would point out is that what we see here in the Iliad and then very much in the Odyssey is that the most, the mortal that Athena cares for the most is Odysseus who represents that craftiness, that cleverness, that wisdom. But the epithet that is constantly tethered to Odysseus is that he's a mastermind like Zeus, which I think is very much another way of saying he's like Athena, right? The goddess that emerged from his mind. Hmm. I don't like at the very end uh, when we just like... Cover up his wounds with pain-killing drugs, and then we're done. It's okay. He's he'll be fine. Like I don't know. Like you, Deacon. You know how I I, I don't like gods intervening with like just swooping up people like after like they should be dead and like oh no we can't fight because it's you know it's too late in the evening. Um, you know all these different things, and then like you have you know Zeus declares and ordered the healing god to treat the god of war. And he comes to Apollo's aid um, and covers him with wounds of pain-killing drugs. And it's like, come on, really? Like, can we not see a little bit more suffering? Or like, can we not see like a little bit more like struggle there? I don't know. To me, it was just kind of like, man, I'd have liked to have seen him not come to the rescue so fast. Well, Zeus also doesn't really like Ares, right? He says, you are my child. This is like 1035. Oh, wait, did I say Apollo? I meant... No, I think you said Ares, didn't you? Okay. okay. Well, if I didn't, I meant Ares anyway. It's Ares. That's who yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. It's 1035, right? You are my child. To me, your mother bore you. If you had sprung from another god, believe me, and grown into such a blinding devastation long ago, you'd have dropped below the Titans deep in the dark pit. He actually says earlier, you I hate most of all of the Olympian gods. Yeah. This is really, yeah. It's and so yeah, I think we're meant to share Zeus's frustration that Ares kind of gets off so easy, right? Yeah. The whole thing with dropping below the Titans is interesting, where I think I think it's in Second Peter, there's a a line where he says something about like the spirits cast into Tartarus. Mm -hmm. Um where he uses the, you know, and then they'll use the term Hades for the underworld too in the New Testament. So there's this interesting way in which, like, 
the the Jews and early Christians didn't necessarily see their cosmos as different from the Greek one. Like mm-hmm. they just kind of saw themselves as having different different names for things and a different view on things. But like, you know, in many ways, like the the sort of they saw the Genesis narrative as kind of correcting a false, you know, narrative in in various paganisms where you know they but in both cases you had kind of a a rebellion where the you know there were rebellious spirits who were cast kind of into an underworld and for them it was you know sheol and for the greeks it was you know hades or tartarus the difference is in you know greek mythology you have a succession where zeus takes over where zeus himself kind of as a rebel who takes over for a previous generation of gods and um obviously the jewish and christian conception doesn't have that <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, it reminds me of uh, St. Augustine, who very much presents these gods as real. Mm-hmm. They're just all demons. Yeah. That's how mm-hmm. he handles mm-hmm. the problem, right? They're, these gods are real. They're just all demons. Well, I mean, if you were if you were Lucifer writing your own propaganda, like, wouldn't you say, like, ah, yes, there was, a, there was an original generation of gods, but, you know, there was origi- an original chief god, but he was corrupt. And so his son, you know, his had to overthrow him and and was stronger than him and you know was succeeded in doing so and now you owe worship to this being no i like that comparison yeah because it's um yeah because one thing about that's interesting between the hebrew culture and the greek culture is the greek culture even in their gods are just absolutely filled with patricide Mm -hmm. right so like um chronos has to fight against uranus and then zeus has to fight against chronos Whereas opposed to then, like in the Old Testament, you see God as father. And that's actually a very endearing, familial thing. And even as husband, right? Taking Israel as a bride. Because I think earlier you kind of, Grayson, earlier you compared kind of the Greek timeline here to the Hebrew one. And that's something that stands out to me as well, that if you take Troy to fall at like, what, 1150, 1250, somewhere in there is what Herodotus says. And then you think about King David's reign is around like a thousand BC. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating to me to read the Iliad and then go read First and Second Samuel. Yeah, your understanding, and you see some like deep comparisons. Like, in all, we have a Sunday small group, uh, Sunday Great Books small group, and um, one of the comparisons that was made early on was, you know, two warriors stepping out into no man's land, and you know their battle is the fate of the armies. And that's what we see with David and Goliath, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see the taunting, you see the mutilation, you yeah. see these different things, and there's some similarities there. But on the differences, it's amazing to me how robust the Hebrew spirituality is compared to the Greeks. Like the Greeks still have this kind of almost cartoonish gods fighting against each other, etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you read like, you know, first and second Samuel are about you know, David's ascension uh, as king. But if you read his Psalms, like the spiritual maturity and theological maturity that we see in the Psalms absolutely blows what Homer's uh, depicting away. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's an interesting thing with the David and Goliath story where you, you kind of almost have this as like an inversion of the, of the warrior culture of, of the Iliad. Um, Or, you know, I know, I know it like, at least according to some theories, the Philistines have kind of a, a, an Indo-European heritage um, that they would have shared in some ways with the Greeks. Um, 
and that you kind of you even have like an arming scene for david where it's kind of meant to be comical right mm -hmm. like instead of being this cool you know arming scene where he's going to step out and, and confront goliath um you know he puts on this armor that's too big for him and is kind of clunking around with the sword that he can't lift and then Goliath is even like incensed by this. He says, "Like, am I a dog that you're sending a boy out to me with a stick? Like, no, I want to fight a warrior who's my equal so I can win glory on the battlefield because this is like what my whole value system is built on." And you know, David just, you know, I think the story is intended to kind of just throw a wrench in the entire value system uh, that's that's underwriting the heroes of the Iliad uh, in a way. No, I think I think very much so, and. And then also, what's interesting is then is that, you know, we, earlier we talked about, well, burying the dead and a corporate act of mercy and et cetera. Well, David cuts off Goliath's head, mm -hmm. right? He actually cuts his head off and then takes it back to the gates of, you know, what will be Jerusalem and then keeps uh, Goliath's sword, which I've always, in my imagination, has always stuck that David keeps Goliath's sword and that's the sword he uses and how much larger... I mean, that almost would have been comical, right? Of like how also, large... Like Final Fantasy VII, where you have like the characters who have like a sword that's like the size of their whole body. It's right. kind of... I mean, that's, that's yeah. what he looks like. I, I really <laughs> wish someone would depict that correctly because it's Goliath's sword that he's running around with. But I do think it's interesting to compare these two Bronze Age narratives together. Mm -hmm. And I do think the David and Goliath one throws these things on its head a bit. But then also somewhat critiques us uh, as we read it of like, no, I mean, David does speak I think, uh, you know, he doesn't have the braggadocious kind of nature that we see in the Iliad, but he does speak in a great confidence. He roots it in the Lord. But he does yeah. speak in great confidence. And then he even does, when he does uh, kill Goliath, you know, he does, quote unquote, mutilate his body. He does cut his head off. He does use it as a trophy, right, that his people have conquered another people. And I think that raises a lot of questions then. I think I just think it's really interesting to read those two narratives alongside each other. Yeah, Um yeah, it's an interesting argument in that book I mentioned earlier, Achilles in Vietnam, where Jonathan Shea, the author, digs into that comparison a little bit um, and kind of argues that the Greek tradition did, you know, that the values that they fought by did tend to create a greater respect for one's enemy and that the, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition that sort of triumphed in the West um, as exemplified by David cutting Goliath's head off, tended to dehumanize them more, which I don't know that I agree with. Um, that kind of dovetails in a way, interestingly, with um, Simone Weil's uh, essay, The Iliad, The Poem of Force, where she she kind of talks about how the the sort of tragedy of the loss of life that you see over and over again throughout the Iliad like plays some role in informing uh, you know, an informing kind of Christian understandings of suffering later on, um, uh, which is also very, very interesting. Um, I can't like do justice to her argument right now, but it's it's very cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be interesting just because, like what you mentioned. I, I mean, I would, you know, obviously we get some very key examples of like what happens if the other side, the enemy, gets hold of a body. Right. And there they very clearly they they mutilate it. And even later with Achilles, we'll see that Achilles intentionally denying people their funeral rites as part mm -hmm. of his rage. Right. There's there's even like a spiritual cruelty that he yeah. showed people that not just to kill them, but to somehow damage and impede their souls from peace in the afterlife 
by denying, you know, the funeral rights. Yeah, I think Shay kind of overstates his case a little bit there with trying to position the sort of Greek tradition as superior. Another interesting thing is you never see anyone take a prisoner in the Iliad. Um, mm -hmm. You have kind of offstage references to, like, at earlier stages in the war, people have taken prisoners and sold them into slavery and stuff as part of their war booty, but in the Iliad, every time, in the actual, like, action of the poem, anytime someone tries to surrender, they're executed on the spot. <laughs> That's right. Like there's that point where someone tries to surrender to Menelaus and he's about to like take them back to the ship as an Agamemnon's like, no, no time, kill him, move on. Yeah, that's the exact example I was going to give because it's there's a classic one with him and then later with Achilles. Yeah, people are sitting there, you know, begging at his knees and they're telling them their genealogy and et cetera. And then eventually he's just like, listen, brother, we're all going to die. Yeah. Like, I'm going to die. You're going to die. We're all going to die. You might as well die now. <laughs> so, yeah, very good. Okay, any other thoughts on book five? Any other themes you missed or anything we want to touch on? It was a is a uh, an awesome like uh event eventful book. Like it was there was just a lot of things that happened in this book. You know, like uh Grayson kinda like what you're saying, like you get you get this lull in, in book two. Uh you know, there and you know, throughout the Iliad, you hear about like some of these books that are kind of lulled, like and and dragging a little bit. This was not one of them. This is one that kind of really captured my attention and captured my imagination. Uh, there was like some 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 parts where you're like, yes, and there were some parts you were like, come on, are you kidding me? Like, you know, there, and there's just peaks and valleys. And um, no, I, like I I thoroughly enjoyed book five. Book five was one probably you know is only five in, but uh, probably my favorite book thus far. Um, because there was a lot going on, a lot for your imagination and a lot to chew on, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed and appreciated. Yeah, you laugh, you cry, you cheer. It's a, it's a, <laughs> you boo. There's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, Grayson, we deeply appreciate you uh, joining us this evening. And uh, thank you so much for helping us guide through book five. Yeah, thank you for having me on, both of you. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, Grayson, how do they uh, follow up with you if they want to stay up to date with what you got going on? Uh, sure. Yeah, you can uh, Google my name, which thankfully is very unique. So you only get me. It's Grayson Quay, Q-U-A-Y. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Hemingway, H-E-M-I-N-G-Q-U-A-Y. Awesome. Hey, man, thanks so much. Uh, we'll have to do it again soon. I appreciate it very much. Sounds good. Have a good one. You're listening to Ascend, the Great Books podcast. We'll see you next week.